Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Political Bark. This week we are talking about international politics again and we are focusing on the EU and the US and transatlantic relations. Mata, who is our guest today? Today we have Benjamin Haddad from uh, the Atlantic Council. He's the future he's the director for the Future Europe Initiative and he's French himself but has lived in DC for the past few years working at Hudson. So we have a French guy. We have a guy, yeah. French guy, but is also expert in the U.S. Yeah, he's uh, so he's an expert on European politics, but also transatlantic relations, and is a regular contributor to uh, newspapers on both sides of the Atlantic, writing about U.S. politics, explaining that sort of. This thing. this guy is moving, and he's quite he's quite the the hotshot, isn't he? He is, he yeah. He was in Macron's uh, en match campaign, also. Yeah, in 2017, he was a representative in D.C. Uh, he's been working for different think tanks, working in politics in France. I'm wondering if. Like a bark, lucky enough to per- perhaps have a potential French president candidate on on its podcast. Maybe we'll see. I mean, his book that he came out with, uh, last year was great. And looking at it's called Paradise Lost: Europe in the World of Trump, analyzing the need for a greater European unity uh, with the upcoming challenges. And yeah, he's got a lot going for him. So it'll be really interesting to hear his perspectives. Yeah. So the topic today is the EU, the US, the relationship between the two. And someone on China also, because we can't avoid uh, China in 2020. Just in 2020. Okay, let's hear from the expert. Hi, Ben. Happy to have you here. Thanks for having me. You're um, you're in DC, and I read on Twitter a while ago that you wrote uh, that you guys went from uh, quarantine to curfew. What's the mood there now? Yeah, it's been a heavy year for Americans, for Europeans as well. Obviously, the United States is in the midst of an unprecedented health crisis that's not going uh, anywhere, contrary to Europe, if you look at the curve here. Uh, unprecedented economic crisis with uh, 16% unemployment. These are the highest numbers since the, the Great Depression. And now in the midst of also a, uh, a deeper reckoning with questions of, of race and identity. Um, we are out of the curfew still, and that's something that's very positive because Uh, initially, we saw some violence with uh, the protests, with, with looting and, a, and a, uh, a risk of radicalization of the movement. And actually, we've seen really the opposite since then. Uh, the movement has grown much more peaceful, uh, really massive with uh, support, I would say, even across the partisan spectrum, which is something that's been really striking to see. You have 25, 33% of Republicans supporting uh, Black Lives Matter. So There's, there's this deeper uh, debate that's going on in the United States about police violence and more generally about uh, inequalities and, and racial discrimination. Um, but it's, um, it's been a heavy year for, I think, for a lot of Americans. Okay, so taking it from the U.S. to Europe, I studied the Europe as a political and um, social system, so I'm very interested in knowing more about the EU, EU in 2020, and especially after hearing one of your comments where you said that the EU needs to step up massively in terms of uh, militarily and also economic. So what does that mean in terms of uh, where's EU headed in 2020? Yeah, I mean, look, I think, you know, uh, for a long time, the EU's project was first bringing peace and unity to the continent. And so we saw this, you know, this year, uh, 2020 is the 70th anniversary of the Schuman Declaration, which led to the creation of the coal and steel community, the first time that we started pulling resources, industrial resources at the European level between France, Germany, And others, and obviously, as you know, this led to a succession of institutions and the creation of the euro and, 
and uh, Schengen, free circulation zone. But I think now we're at a turning point. We just got out of 10 years of crisis. We had the migration crisis, the euro crisis, Brexit, the election of Donald Trump and the US president who basically says, guys, you're on your own and you have to take care of yourself. And I think now it's time for uh, Europeans to look beyond their own backyard and think about how do we uh, uh, defend our model on the international stage? What do we do to uh, protect, especially security issues in, in our neighborhood? We've seen the consequences of the crisis in Syria in the last 10 years, the consequences of security with terrorism, in terms of migration with the 2015 uh, crisis. But just this week, I mean, people don't really notice because we're focused on something else, but there's now a, uh, a conflict with Turkey in Libya at the periphery of the European Union. Europeans are divided. And to be honest, they're not really relevant in something that here again will have direct consequences for uh, their security. The French on one side, the Italians are on the other. So this is why in a lot of what I've been writing and, and, and saying in the last few years, I think that uh, Europeans should really step up, unite, and start thinking differently about how do we defend our interests, how do we defend our values, and how do we step up to be really a, a geopolitical player. We've, we've heard a lot actually about this from leaders of the European Commission, of this new commission, you know, Ursula von der Leyen, the president of the European Commission, has said that she wants to make Europe a geopolitical power. We hear Joseph Borrell, the high representative, saying that we've been naive. We've been naive when it comes to uh, trade relations with China, for example. But now th this is important, uh, an important shift in discourse, I think. Now the question is how we turn this into a, uh, a polity, a power that is uh, more realist, I think, on the world stage. So uh, does the EU have a uh, common foreign policy? Or where is it? Well, look, I think it, it depends what you, where you look at, right? So if you look at places where uh, the EU, as in Brussels, the Commission, has specific prerogatives, there are areas in which the EU has a real weight, has a real clout on, on the international state, on very concrete things. One is obviously digital issues. You know, when in the last few years, when you go on websites and you have to click on new privacy rules, including on American websites. This is GDPR. That's the standards and norms that the EU is setting across the stage and, uh, and that U.S. companies have to comply with. And a lot of the debate on um, uh, antitrust, on taxing tech, tech giants that now you hear also on, on my side of the Atlantic started in the European Union. On the environment, on trade issues, I think the EU is a, is, is a united and strong actor. We've seen it in the, in the talks in Brexit in the last few years. You know, a lot of people initially in 2016 predicted that the European Union would be divided, uh, that, uh, you know, Chancellor Merkel was going to defend the interest of her car industry, when Macron was going to defend something else, and that, that hasn't happened. We've seen a united, cohesive EU negotiating with, with the Brits on, on trade issues and to defend the principles of the EU. So on these, I would say on these economic and sort of soft issues, Europeans are a power. The problem that I'm is more the foreign policy and uh, strategic issues where I don't think we've seen uh, Europeans as united and being able to really uh, um, impose their, their interest in the same uh, respect. Mm. So um, talking about how, how does uh, the rest of the world view Europe, what's, the, what, what's its trade, trademarks, you're talking about soft power, but how does the US view Europe, the European Union, other countries, can you go a bit more into that? Yeah, absolutely. So I think there's a few issues here. I mean, the first one is, you know, when you think about the EU itself, the Brussels institutions, I think they're confusing for a lot of people. And they're confusing for European citizens, and they're also confusing for foreigners. You know, there's this famous phrase that's attributed to uh, Henry Kissinger uh, three decades ago, four decades ago, who said, 
you what's the phone number and i said so i think you know when when you're you look at it from an american perspective there's always a, a question of who represents the eu who do i reach out to and this is why we've seen this administration but also previous administrations focus more on bilateral relations with countries i mean that's been really especially really encouraged by the trump administration to sort of divide europeans to have direct relations to to Poland, to France, to a lot of countries in Europe. Um, first, because that, that means that Europeans don't carry their weight together, but it's just also simpler and, and less confusing for, for Americans. So I think you have, you have a lot of this. But I, say, I would say beyond that, uh, that uh, Europe is also just becoming less central for Americans. You know, uh, uh, and, and in a way, that's a good thing. US, the, Europe was the theater of the Cold War, was the theater for the rivalry with the Soviet Union. Uh, the Cold War is over and the good guys won. So, you know, that's, that's also something to celebrate, even though a lot of Europeans regret that they're not as key to American policymakers as they used to be. But clearly, U.S. priorities have shifted to Asia. They've shifted to the Middle East. They're going to shift more and more to U.S. domestic politics, you know, to tackle this economic and social crisis that I was mentioning uh, earlier. You see... U.S. demographics changing, uh, shifting more to the Pacific in California, a different kind of, of population, a migrant wave. So I think you'll see that uh, uh, just the, the United States will be less and less focused on, on, on Europeans. But is the, the EU actually realizing this? Is, is the, the shift in America's interest, is that something that they see in Brussels? I think they see it and they talk about it. I'm not sure they really... Uh, um, answer this with concrete policy shifts though you know so we heard for example at the beginning of the trump administration chancellor merkel famously say well we can only rely on ourselves now but if you look at the last three years you know we started some processes on defense and foreign policy integrations with uh, pesco the european defense fund all these uh, instruments that basically pull resources to support uh, common uh, projects in security and defense The, the budgets that were attributed to this were already fairly low by military standards in the first place, and they've been even a half to two uh, during the recent uh, uh, budgetary negotiation that the European Parliament. Um, I think on a lot of issues, once again, you know, I mentioned Libya just because it's very recent, but we could talk about the Western Balkans. You know, it's really, it's, it's in Europe. It's not even in the neighborhood of Europe. It's, it's in Europe, and um, this week, the U.S. administration announced that it was inviting the leaders of Serbia and Kosovo for uh, peace and economic talks in Washington, and everyone in Europe was completely stunned. So you would think that this is an area in which Europeans should take the lead. So I think, unfortunately, that uh, Europeans have said, you know, we now need to step up, we now need to unite, and we can't rely on anyone else anymore. But the reality, I think, consciously or not, is that a lot of Europeans have decided to wait Trump out, to just mm. say, okay, this is an aberration, Uh, it's just three or four years, and then we'll revert to, to normal and the golden age of transatlantic relations, whatever that means. Uh, but first, there is a risk of obviously Trump being reelected. I'm sure we're going to talk about it. But even with the Biden administration, I think you'll uh, you'll have surprises and see that uh, U.S. priority, the rhetoric will be much nicer. The cooperation on global challenges like fighting climate change, obviously, and, and respecting multilateral institutions will be much more positive. But I'm, the I'm, rhetoric or the actual uh, the actual work done is, will Sorry. it be will it be only talk or will it be actual 
works. I think, I think on global issues, if you look, you know, Democrats and progressives really care now about the fight against uh, climate change. So you'll, you'll see, I think, not only the United States reintegrating the Paris Climate Agreement, but having also, I think, a, a conversation to step up the, the commitments. And that's something also, by the way, it's interesting because we're all focused on Washington and the federal government. But you see a lot of actors in the United States who already take this very seriously, mayors, mm. governors, private companies. If you look at the, the numbers in terms of uh, uh, carbon emission in the United States, they're actually much better in, in the last few years than you'd expect when you hear Donald Trump. So so the U.S. is not only, especially on issues like this, it's not just Washington, D.C. And, and the federal government. But on other issues that Europeans care about, I'm not sure you'll see the United States uh, uh, be so uh, so involved and so committed. So it's interesting. Well, you mentioned, of course, now Europe isn't the stage anymore as it was during the Cold War. But since uh, World War II, uh, it's been the U.S. that's been the leader in uh, at least in the Western world. And we saw with Trump, but especially now during COVID nineteen, that the U.S. didn't really step up to take leader or show leadership during the crisis. Um, do you think that the EU managed to take this, but a bit more control over it, or? Um, what's the dynamic there, and how do you view how do you view the EU's role in handling this pandemic? It's a mixed bag, I think. I mean, first, look to be fair to the EU, you have to remember that uh, health issues are actually not an exclusive competence of the European Union. This is this is up to nation states. You do need cooperation, but you know when it comes to providing masks and tests and all these things, it first it's first a prerogative of of countries, and this is why you've seen such a diversity of reactions across the board. I think initially it was kind of everyone for himself, and you, you've seen a lot of divisions. Um, but I think when when you started seeing the pressure, especially with Russia and China propping up uh, propaganda, saying you know we're we're delivering masks and tests, you've seen a strong reaction from European uh, authorities. You've seen more coordination. You know you had famous stories of uh, French patients being treated across the border in Luxembourg in Germany. So a lot of positive stories. Uh, and I also think that the economic response has been important. Uh, you have two kinds of economic response. First, one that sort of flies below the radar, but that's really key, is the European Central Bank. Really, you know, basically doing in four weeks what it took us last time during the euro crisis to do in four years. Uh, saying we'll do whatever it takes and uh, um, buying assets and providing liquidity to the markets. And this is why we've seen this on both sides of the Atlantic, the Fed too in the United States. This is why the financial markets have reacted in such a weird way, very different from the normal economy. But then also, I think you've seen a strong reaction from member states more recently with the announcement of this massive recovery package that will allow the uh, the Commission to borrow money on, on financial markets and be able to inject it to uh, countries that need uh, they need it the most and that will be more hard hit by the economic crisis. I think that's a positive step. Uh, we're not there yet, though. I mean, if you look at the, a lot of the structural imbalances that led to the euro crisis 10 years ago, 2011, in the first place, are still there. The fact that it's not what economists call an optimal currency area. You don't have a sort of redistribution mechanism between rich countries and poor countries that you have between rich states and, 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 and poor states in the United States. So that's, that's still something that needs to be worked on. But I think that Europeans did react seriously and, and they did put you know money on the table. Now your question though, to be more precise, was about global leadership. So I'm just talking about Europeans for themselves. And that's something that uh, concerns me because uh, as we're so much focused for good reasons, because our, uh, you know we first have to defend the interest and the well-being of our citizens, 
as we're so focused on ourselves, we shouldn't forget the fact that economies in our neighborhood, in, in Africa, for example, in Central Asia and elsewhere, will be very hard hit by the effect of the pandemic. Uh, and we need to step up to help them. Uh, we're only because if we don't, other countries like China with different agenda, with different values and different institutional norms to defend will also step up. And we've seen already with the Belt and Road the effect of... Uh, So, in terms of uh, bringing in China, since uh, you <laughs> introduced China to the conversation, what about the internal uh, division in Europe between Eastern European countries and Western European countries? We have, let's say, Hungary, who uh, were happy to receive medical aid from China, who have a, who has a good relationship. Actually, all of the countries from at least Hungary and onwards to the Middle East, they have quite good relationships with China. Um, if um, if the EU e, the EU is not itself going to produce, uh, let's say, enough jobs, enough trade, enough economic uh, growth, and China is in the in the next five years, w what will happen? What kind of threat is that to to Europe? Yeah, no, I think that's a major challenge right now, and uh, and we're seeing you know people sort of uh, awake to this issue because. The problem with the European Union goes back to something we were saying earlier. Is uh, for a long time it, it, it saw mostly these relations solely through the prism of economics and trade and jobs and, and GDP numbers. Uh, but that's not how a country like China sees it. This is some, something much more political. If you look at Belt and Road, it's not only investing in infrastructure projects around the world. It's also creating uh, relations of political dependency with countries. You mentioned Hungary. We could talk about Greece. These are countries, you know, Greece sold the, the Greece port to, to China uh, when, it, when it needed to sell assets during the, the Greek financial crisis. And what we've seen is these countries vote against the consensus at the European Council on issues like human rights for the Uyghurs, on issues like freedom of navigation in the South China Sea. So clearly, these are not neutral investments. There are strings attached. That's one issue. A second issue is obviously the, uh, the level playing field when uh, you have... You know, you don't have the same kind of access to Chinese markets for European companies as you have to Chinese companies in European markets. You have subsidies and sort of hidden subsidies. You have companies like Huawei that have a very opaque uh, um, um, sort of um, uh, ownership structure. And so no one really knows what kind of influence the Chinese state have, a, uh, have a, over uh, uh, companies like Huawei. So I think now, you know, you, you've, you have divisions, as you mentioned, uh, within the European Union. You have the 17 plus 1 format in Central and Eastern Europe, countries that have this, this framework of uh, uh, trade with, uh, with China. A country like Italy has been the first country last year to sign a memorandum, a memorandum of understanding with the uh, Belt and Road Initiative. And you have even major countries like Germany that actually depend a lot on, on China for their exports. So I think that some of the things that are coming out of Brussels are very positive. And I think that uh, a united European Union here is the best shield to protect European sovereignty from, uh, from uh, Chinese interference. Last year, the European Union published a, uh, a paper that uh, was widely commented calling China a systemic rival, also a partner, but a systemic rival promoting an alternative view of uh, the international system. And since then, we've seen a lot, I think, of positive moves from the EU promoting an investment screening mechanism that would basically tell countries when they feel an investment is threatening their sovereignty, their autonomy, the independence of the media, the, uh, uh, or has risk in terms of security and spying. Um, Commissioner Vestager just last week 
um, talked about imposing a level playing field when it comes to subsidies. So I think these are conversations that need to be had. Uh, we're, we're seeing them right now, but the only way to have them is to be as, as united as possible. Because if you if you put Hungary, Italy, or even Germany on its own to discuss these issues with China, obviously you won't have the sort of balance of power that you need. If you put the European market all together, uh, then you can have, I think, a much more balanced relationship. Just a little follow-up, um, speaking of the EU and China. Um, so the EU, as you said, doesn't have an approach to health. I mean, that's not a, one of its areas. But we've also seen that China has, during the pandemic and also before, starting a few years ago, started with um, a health Silicon Road initiative, sort of so. And that's grown during the pandemic, especially in Central Asia. You see that b due to COVID-19 and the future of probably more pandemics, Does the EU need to step up on this field also to have a stronger policy on health uh, Christians? Yeah, I think I think certainly. I mean, you know, we're still at the early stages of this. And I think I look at France, for example, we're just starting the sort of lessons learned uh, from the pandemic. Uh, after, after SARS and the different uh, pandemic that we had in the early 2000s, France had create a stock of masks, for example, that it completely destroyed in the meantime. And so French authorities were completely caught unaware. Uh, we also realized that we didn't have the industrial capacity to be able to step up uh, testing early on that a country like Germany had. So I think we need to have these conversations about how we're better prepared. Now, the, the trick with this, obviously, is that, you know, it's kind of like in military strategy or in economic regulation, you always prepare for the previous war. Uh, so the next pandemic will be very different, might come from different sources and, and necessitate a different response. But I think the question is, how do we make ourselves less fragile to uh, uh, um, shocks and, and black swans like this? Uh, one, one is obviously you know, thinking about the test and, and the testing uh, and the mask. And, but I think another one uh, is how do we, uh, on the French level is a key issue, how do we um, decentralize more and how do we trust more local actors and private actors? I think we've seen uh, in some countries uh, like Germany a, a better approach to sort of uh, bring in, be more inclusive in the response, uh, rely more on individual responsibility, on, on corporate responsibility, uh, and just a, a more fluid uh, a, approach to this than we see in a, in a country like France. And I think another a key issue, and that's a conversation to be had at the European level, As you see right now, this debate about supply chains uh, and a lot of the industries that we outsource to China and other places, and how should we maybe start um, uh, reintegrating, reimporting some of these industrial supply chains in uh, in more competitive areas of the European Union, like like Central and Southern Europe, for example. Uh, that's a much more long-term debate, and that relies as more as much as on corporations as it does on institutions. But I think that's that's a conversation that we're going to have to have is. Uh, What, what, is the, what is the balance between corporate profits and, and uh, responsibility in issues like this? Uh, do you see a trade war, uh, US-China? No, I, I don't think a trade war, because if you think about a trade war, it means that you're weaponizing trade for other reasons. That's what uh, the Trump administration has been doing with imposing tariffs. I don't think that's the idea. The idea is, is there are rules. Uh, for example, the EU is still attached to the rules of WTO. Uh, unfortunately, WTO has been very weakened by the Trump administration, which refused to appoint judge, judges to its appellate court. I think that's hopefully a behavior that we'll see changing in a, in a, in a Biden administration if possible. But, um, but I think the question is, is imposing a level playing field. 
So making sure that you know you have uh, countries respecting the same rules. So um, maybe we should move on a bit to another area of your expertise. So the U.S. and upcoming elections. I remember you were one of the few uh, that weren't surprised in D.C. by Trump's election. How do you see, I mean, in the past few months and years, we've seen erratic behavior from Trump. And again, looking at my feed and friends, everyone's thinking, you know, he has to go. But how he's handled COVID, how he's handling uh, the BLM movement, Uh, and in general, his past years, which have been written with uh, quite dramatic allegations, how do you see, how do you predict the elections coming up now? Yeah, well, I think the first rule of this is just to make no prediction. <laughs> uh, I, I wish people had drawn more lessons from 2016, both Brexit and Trump election, and were a little more modest in this. I think it's also really important when you're when you're an analyst or an economist or anything of the sort. To, to always uh, make sure to distinguish your personal preferences to your objective analysis of the situation. And clearly, I think in 2016, what happened is a lot of analysts found Trump so disdainful and so outrageous that they couldn't even fathom the idea that his discourse would be attractive to a lot of people. And I think the reason why a lot of Europeans who were in the United States were less surprised by his rise and his victory is because we already had these populist movements in a lot of our European countries, and we could see how um, the anti-immigration, the protectionism, the sort of uh, uh, bombastic rhetoric would appeal uh, to, to people, especially in front of a more sort of mild technocratic uh, discourse. Now for 2020, look, first I would be very cautious because a month ago you had all the analysts writing articles saying the election will be determined by COVID. And now in the United States, everyone has forgotten about COVID and it's all about the protests. So we have no idea what this election will be determined about. The truth is it will be a referendum on Donald Trump. And it depends what it will be. Maybe we might be in, in a moment of heightened tension with China. Maybe it will be the protests and racial issues again. Another reason why it's very difficult to predict is because of the way that the system is set up, right? So Donald Trump will very likely lose the uh, popular vote. If you look at polling, he lost it last time by 3 million votes, and I think he's going to lose it by an even wider margin this time. But it doesn't matter, because if you have more people voting against him in New York and California, it doesn't change the fact that what really matters is the margin in the swing states. Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Florida. And if he wins, wins this, these ones by 10,000 votes, then he could win the Electoral College. So I think it's, it's really difficult to predict. What we can say safely is that he's not the favorite, Uh, he is going through a very low point of his presidency. I think people, uh, including a lot of Republicans, are uh, very upset with the way he handled these protests, uh, the lack of empathy, the lack of call for unity, um, the fact that he was clearly sort of betting on radicalization, betting on division. I think he, you know, we saw him a lot talk about law and order and authority, and he was basically trying to mimic Richard Nixon in 1968 was elected on law and order rhetoric uh, um, during racial uh, protests across the country. But obviously the situation is different and this movement is much more peaceful. So uh, I, I think right now he probably is at his lowest point in the polls in the last um, three years. So he's not the favorite, but once again, I think he was not the favorite in 2016 and, and won nonetheless. And I also think it's dangerous to make any election a referendum on your opponent. I think Joe Biden will have to come up with uh, concrete policy ideas, will have to come up with an ambitious and, and motivating message to galvanize his base. And I think being against Donald Trump is, is, is not enough because, once again, 
it puts him at the center of the debate, and that's what he likes the most. And uh, regardless of who will be the president, do you think we're seeing a return to America in terms of uh, after the Cold War, uh, the U.S. took a leading role everywhere or tried at least? Do you think we're seeing more of a uh, back to the back to the U.S. back to the the co one country and and uh, whoever can deliver that will have votes? Is there a, is there a trend? So look, I mean, I think it, there's a few things. It's, it's, a, it's a very interesting question. The first thing is, uh, it, whoever's elected in November 2020 will have to deal with an unprecedented economic and health crisis and also questions of social divisions and, and racial issues. And so I think rebuilding the country and rebuilding unity will be its priority. And it will be done in a very difficult and fraught context because the country is very polarized. And it's very hard, even for someone who wants to overcome this polarization, to do it because the media environment is so scattered that when you talk to a certain part of the population, it's not filtered the same way by MSNBC and Fox News. So building consensus, building compromise is very difficult in the United States, like it is in Europe, but I think even more difficult in the United States now. But also you will have indeed global leadership issues. One will be climate change. I think the Biden administration will, will take tackle this differently. But the most interesting thing is one issue on which there's a clear bipartisan consensus is the strategic rivalry with China. That is a consensus for uh, American strategists. Um, you know, I was in the Munich Security Conference in February. Nancy Pelosi was there. She's one of the harshest opponents to uh, Donald Trump. She's the um, the um, the head of the the House of Representatives, uh, and she warned Europeans against using uh, Huawei for their 5G networks. Hmm. Uh, so. You have a clear uh, consensus on this. I think a Biden administration would do it differently, would bring in uh, European and Pacific allies much more, would uh, have a more multilateral approach on how to deal with this issue, whereas the Trump administration is really focused on bi the bipartisan trade, uh, the bi sorry, bilateral trade uh, negotiations with Beijing. So B Biden would probably bring in you know, more economic issues and trade issues and maybe bring them back into the WTO. Uh, but I think that will still be the, the, the priority for, for U.S. administration. So you'll see a rhetoric that will be very different, but you'll see sort of lines of continuity, not so much on the method, but at least on the objectives. Okay, well, thank you so much for very interesting and new perspectives. Thank um, you so much for tuning in and telling us, yeah, giving us from the States that, and a better European ex um, perspective on what the future lies for us. <laughs> so it'll be interesting to see November 2020. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Play Go Bark. I really hope you enjoyed Benjamin Haddad's interesting perspectives on the EU and on the US. He is truly a really interesting person and he knows so much about the EU, European countries, the EU as a political and social system, but also about the US. He lives in the US right now. And he has traveled all over the, the country to learn about the political situation and also the different divides that exist between the states. His book, uh, Le Paradis Perdu, the, the Paradise Lost, about uh, Trump's America and the end of European il illusions, is a book that I really recommend. It will give you knowledge about current affairs and also is really good in terms of trying to forecast what's happening next. You'll hear from me next week. See you.